As we have an opening word of prayer this morning, I'd like to read a couple of verses from Psalm 111, where we read these words, And the works of his hand are truth and justice, and all his precepts are sure. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Our Father, we are so blessed to know the God about whom this is true. Father, we live in a world that is just so rife with evil and violence and degradation and everything that would pull mankind down to the level of animals. And yet, Father, we know that there is holiness and righteousness in your name. And you impute that holiness and righteousness to us as we trust in Jesus Christ and as we seek to live obediently before him. O oh Lord, we just pray that as the trials and tribulations of life uh, continue for each one of us, that we will learn the lessons that you have for us. And even as we study that many trials and tribulations through which David went, that we will see how it was God preparing him for the momentous task of being king over the nation of Israel. And we're thankful, Lord, for the example that uh, David was. And Father, I pray that we will not just hear these things as academic learning, but it will become a part of our very being, of who we are, uh, that our lives will be so changed that uh, uh, everybody we touch will have a sense that God is near. Lord, bless this Sunday school class today and in each class uh, throughout this campus this day. And we'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. After the death of Saul, Abner, who was not only Saul's first cousin, but was Saul's army commander. And because they were of the same family, Abner decided that with the death of Saul, he didn't want the family to lose power in the land. And so he picked up the only remaining son that belonged to Saul, a man by the name of Ishbosheth, and uh, he elevated him to the position of monarch over Israel. But Ishbosheth was a weak man, as we have seen and will see. And so Abner was the real power behind the throne. He was the one who was truly in charge of the land. But you will remember, we recently studied that there was a battle which took place between Abner and the army of Israel and Joab and the army of David, in which Abner's force was routed and, and badly defeated. And as a result of that, we read in the third chapter, the first verse of 2 Samuel, that David grew stronger, steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew weak continually. It doesn't go into the explanation of what all that meant. How much time are we talking about here? What were the events that uh, brought about this obvious weakening of the house of Saul and strengthening of the house of David? But we know that behind it was the power and might of the Lord God. Uh, David was his man, and he was going to elevate David to the rule over Israel, and the enemy and those who allied to the enemy were not going to stand in God's way. God will prevail. And it's up to us to believe that and trust that and know that he will prevail. Even though we look at our land today, 
and, and we see the degradation in it, God is still victorious. And sometimes the mud needs to get really, really deep before people realize they need to be lifted out of it. Abner finally decided to yield the, the throne to David. And, and part of the reason was given in the chapter, uh, the early part of the chapter as we studied it, where Ishbosheth dared to challenge Abner's uh, exercising his authority by taking one of Saul's concubines. And as I mentioned at that time, I don't think that was the issue. <laughs> you know, the, the one moment where Ishbosheth dared to challenge Abner could not have been the whole motivating force behind Abner deciding to yield authority to David. There had to be a whole lot of factors involved, including this obvious weakening position of the house of Saul and strengthening position of the house of David. So what? Abner finally made arrangements with other elders of Israel and said, well, originally you wanted to choose David, so let's do it. Let's do it now. Uh, let's choose David as king. And then he made contact with David and went up to Hebron, you remember? And he met with David at Hebron. David gave him a feast and, and be upset because he had a strong grudge against Abner because Abner had killed his youngest brother Asahel, of course, legitimately on the battlefield, but nevertheless. Joab had a grudge against him. And I think Joab also had a fear because Abner was a brilliant commander that possibly David, because David was not always really excited about Joab, uh, Joab was a bit of an ornery guy and had a tendency towards insubordination that uh, he might even replace him, that is Joab, with, with Abner. And so, as we read last time, he and, and his brother Abishai connived together to, to kill Abner. And they did it in the gateway of the city of Hebron, which was David's capital. I mean, it's one thing to offend, the to, to offend your king, but to do it right so boldly in the gateway of his city, this was a, a horrendous act. And it was as if Joab was saying, I am David's cousin, I, I'm David's nephew, and I can do whatever I want. And if David doesn't like it, he can just lump it. You know, it's, it's sort of the attitude that he was displaying here. Well, at the last we read uh, last week, when David heard that Joab had circumvented his authority and dared to call Abner back and to unilaterally pronounce judgment on Abner in effect and to kill him, that David became very, very livid. And let me read the words of David again in verse 28 of chapter 3 of 2 Samuel. And afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are innocent before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall on the head of Joab and on his father's house. And may there not fail from the house of Joab one who has a discharge or who, ha who is a leper or who takes hold of a distaff. Distaff is the, is the stick that's used in, um, when you are spinning yarn. So it's a long stick which can also be used as a crutch. And it's what it means here as a crutch. Or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. Think of David here, God's man, who is so concerned about the blood of one man, Abner, that has been shed, that, that he denies any connection with it and absolves his country, his land, his kingship. And yet we live in a nation today which blood is shed all over the place and, 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 and it's largely ignored. I mean, it's on television, it's shed all the time and as if it's no big deal. And yet here we have just this, the blood being shed of one man. And David was very concerned about how God viewed that. 
And of course, we become inured to it because of the, most of it fortunately is just acting, but still it's so real that in, in people's minds it's, it's, it, it takes away the sensitivity to, to the preciousness of life. And of course, then there is a great deal of real murder that goes on all the time. Even in a little city like Reading, it's really amazing. Well, let's read on, beginning at verse 31. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who are with him, Tear your clothes and gird on sackcloth and lament before Abner. And King David walked behind the bier. Thus they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king chanted a lament for Abner and said, should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put in fetters. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was still day. But David vowed, saying, May God do so to me and more also, if I taste bread or anything else before the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them just as everything the king did pleased all the people. So all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the will of the king to put Abner, the son of Ner, to death. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zeruiah, are too difficult for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer, according to his evil. David, of course, at this point in time, uh, had not been ruler of all Israel. David, at this point in time, did not have 18 wives and concubines. David, at this time, had not yet had his an affair with Bathsheba. David had not yet tried to number Israel against God's will. So all the people were very pleased with David because David was acting in accordance with the will of God. The people understood righteousness even if they didn't live righteously. And people had respect for righteous leadership even if they weren't always righteous. I think it's only David's sincere proclamation of his non-involvement in Abner's assassination and his obviously genuine lamentation over the loss of Abner that saved the situation. David didn't fake it. David didn't walk behind the bier there uh, with crocodile tears. David truly lamented over the death of this man. In his grief and in his anger, David ordered Joab and Abishai and all the rest of the mighty men to tear their clothes and to put on sackcloth and to lament over Abner. Oh, can you imagine how galling that would be to Joab and to Abishai to, to lament? Obviously, they, they just crocodile lamented, but nevertheless, they had to tear their clothes and put on sackcloth as if they really were concerned about the death of Abner. And David himself walked behind the bier, the bed upon which Abner's body was being carried to the site of its uh, burial. It was buried in Hebron. David chose to bury Abner, his enemy, so to speak, in his cap city, possibly for one thing as a reminder of what rebellion dwells in the hearts even of his own men. At the burial site in Hebron, David mourned, and you read there uh, a chant, a lament, 
that he only David's words, and I'm sure under their breath they were really, really upset. They were labeled as all but traitors. David didn't go so far as to actually call them traitors, but right up to that edge is by his actions and by his words, he so labeled his two nephews. We're told in the scripture here that all the people wept over the loss. Now, why would all the people weep over the loss? Well, they did because David was. David was an example. David was a powerful example to his people. And of course, just that in and of itself demonstrates to us how great is the impact of a righteous life upon lives around about and how important it is that our lives are lived in an exemplary way, that we go out of our way to live as Christ would live through us, that our attitudes, that our actions, our words reflect God. I'm sure there were some who felt like Abner had gotten what he deserved. After all, he was the commander of the enemy army. After all, he had raised Ishbosheth to rival David's claim to the throne, and therefore Abner got what he should get. Well, that wasn't David's attitude. And, and some of these men, probably, who were loyal to Joab were very upset with David's castigation of their commander, of, of Joab, and probably thought, David, don't you know this is your nephew and, and he served you well? How can you do this to him? But they were obviously in the minority and, and they, they were wise enough to keep their mouths shut and to go along with the, with the whole program here. Because we find the passage tells us that the majority supported David because they were, they were impressed by his gallantry, by his chivalry, by his honesty, by his overall godlike attitude in everything that he did. In fact, when David vowed that he would fast the rest of the day in honor of the man Abner, the scripture says the people were favorably impressed. They, they'd gone to David and they said, David, you need to eat now. And he says, no, I will not eat for the rest of the day uh, because of my lamentation over this man, Abner, and, and the people were impressed, we're told. And, and, and then the author uh, makes the statement that everything David did seemed good in the eyes of the people. Obviously, everything David did publicly that was known about anyway, he, he did it in, with his eyes on God and his ears attuned, attuned to the Word of God. And we have to think pretty highly of David because he didn't have 66 books that we have, you know? He had the Pentateuch, Joshua probably. Uh, what all he had, we don't know. He didn't have all the instruction we have, and yet he was faithful, faithful to the Lord. And the people understood that, and the people honored him. Scripture teaches us that he who honors God, God will honor. And I think that's important because as, as all of us have talked about on various occasions, as we've looked at even in these recent studies, we have a tendency to, to want to take matters into our own hands often. And often God is not honored by that. Um, David's extreme actions made it clear that he had nothing to do with Abner's death. I mean, it was, people could see that he was genuine in his lamentation, genuine in, in the pain he was suffering over the loss of Abner. Uh, in fact, if you look at this, you could almost get a sense that David was lamenting over this man as if he were his own son. Abner was probably as old as David. You know? what, what David does is he lauds Abner, not, not for the things he did which were wrong, but he lauds Abner as a prince. 
and as a great man in Israel. He was a mighty warrior, and he had fought well on behalf of, of, of his king, Saul, and, and he had led men well. And so David honored him for that. And even though David, uh, even though uh, Abner had raised up a rival, uh, Abner had quickly decided, no, I'm not going to let David have the throne. I'm going to raise up Ishbosheth so that we can keep control of. David dismisses all of that. David does not take it in and look at it as a personal offense to him because he says, that's God's problem. God has promised me the throne. If, if Abner gets in the way, that's God's problem. It's not my problem. Same way he viewed Saul. He considered Abner to have been a great Israelite. And he looked at his death as a loss to the nation of Israel. Yeah, how often might we view the death of someone who was our rival or, or who might even be viewed as our enemy as a loss <laughs> when, when that person dies or is taken, taken out? Even though David was king, he felt personally weakened by the loss of Abner. Particularly, of course, by the way Abner was lost. By the fact that it was his own commander, his own nephew, who took matters into his own hands and chose to act as if he had the mind of God and to destroy Abner. His loss, of course, was felt because Abner was a, bright, a, a brilliant warrior. And how many brilliant warriors were there? How many champions were there? Uh, we have to kind of go back and put ourselves into the day of the sword and the bow and the, and the spear and the shield and the chain mail. Of course, chain mail comes much later, but all, all this kind of personal warrior kind of one-on-one -on -one combat, not half a mile away shooting somebody with a high-caliber gun or blasting them with bombs. Personal, nose-to-nose -nose combat. How many were there who were true champions, who could fight multiple persons at once and prevail? There were few. They were few and far between. And Abner apparently was such a man. And so David mourned the loss of a mighty warrior in Israel. And secondly, of course, he was concerned that the people would really consider the death of Abner his responsibility. I mean, we all have so often heard, and you probably have even seen the actual newsreels of President Truman sitting behind his desk. And it really says the buck stopped here, right on his desk, on the sign there. And, and we could see where David would have a sense. Yes, Joab did it, but I am responsible because Joab was my commander. He was under my authority. David does complain. And I'll be reading a passage of, in the Psalms in a minute here where, where complaining is actually not um, looked upon as a bad thing. That, you know, you can complain to God. If you need to complain, complain to God. You know, God can take it. God can handle it. He's not going to be offended, and God isn't going to be made insecure by our complaints. And so David complained that rather than aiding his cause, the sons of Zerah, his own nephews, were like an albatross around his neck now. Remember it was Abishai who, when, when David had gone into the camp uh, and Saul was sleeping there, and David stole the water pot and the spear away just so that Saul would know that he was close enough. And, and Abishai says, just let me get one whack is all it takes. Just I'll get this guy with one spear thrust. And David had to almost hold him back. This was the brother of Joab. So these guys were sort of like in the New Testament, you know, the sons of thunder, uh, James and John. So here we have a, a parallel. So just as Jesus had his sons of thunder, so... David has his sons of Zeruiah. 
Uh, David's last words on the matter were, May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his deeds. Well, we will, Lord willing, see that fulfilled. Because one of the first acts of Solomon, son of David, was to execute Joab. Because Joab had acted as a traitor to Solomon. Let me read uh, the passage uh, in Psalm chapter 28, uh, where David speaks about what it is to, um, to violate God's law and to be, as David had done to Joab, to be condemned. In Psalm 28, David writes these words, To thee, O Lord, I call my rock. Do not be deaf to me, lest if thou be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplication when I cry to thee for help. When I lift up my hands toward thy holy sanctuary, do not drag me away with the wicked, with those who work iniquity, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Requite them according to their work and according to the evil of their practices. Requite them according to the deeds of their hands. Repay them their recompense because they did not regard the works of the Lord nor the deeds of his hand. He will tear them down and not build them up. So David there is expressing the exact feeling he has here concerning Joab and Abishai. Uh, two men who have, as, as he says there in the fifth verse, who did not regard the works of the Lord as David had done. David chose to let God repay his enemies, not to do it himself. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, we have no right to take revenge or vengeance. And, and, and so David, in, in this psalm, is saying almost exactly what he says concerning Joab. He's asking Lord to repay Joab for the evil which he has done. David wasn't going to do it. David had the power. Of course, he was king. He could say, Joab, you, you have violated my authority. You have taken law into your own hands. You deserve to die, and so I'm going to execute you. He could have done that. I don't think it would have been a wise thing for him to do, not only because he would have been taking God's authority away from him, but he'd have he'd hurt his following because many thought of Joab as a great man. But he didn't. He just said, God will do it. God will do it. But Joab, of course, wasn't willing to let God do it as far as Abner was concerned. First verse of the fourth chapter. Let me read the fourth chapter. It's short of, first, of Second Samuel. Now when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage and all Israel was disturbed. And Saul's son had two men who were commanders of bands. The name of the one was Baana, and the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Rimmon, the Barathite, sons of Benjamin, for Barath is also considered a part of Benjamin. And the Barathites <coughs> fled to Gatame and have been aliens there until this day. Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a crippled son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So the sons of Rimmon, the Barathite, Rechab and Baana, departed and came to the house of Ishbosheth in the heat of the day while he was taking his midday rest. They came into the middle of the house as if to get wheat. 
and they struck him in the belly, and Rechab and Banna, his brother, escaped. Now when they came into the house as he was lying on the bed, now verse 7 kind of goes back and gives a little more detail uh, that verse 6 uh, dealt with. He was lying on his bed in his bedroom. They struck him and killed him and beheaded him. They took his head and traveled by way of the Arabah all night. Then they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. Thus the Lord has given my Lord the king vengeance this day on Saul and his descendants. And David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, sons of Rimmon, the Barathite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news. I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not require his blood at your hands? Destroy and destroy you from the earth. Then David commanded the young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hung them up beside the pool of Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the grave of Abner at Hebron. You know, many will say, Oh, the Old Testament is so bloody. Well, all you have to do is turn on television. You know? This drives home a point. This strikes terror into people's heart. Whereas the stuff that we're pours into our lives through television and radio and modern music and the movies and all the rest of it makes it all as if it's no big deal. I mean, it almost makes human beings as if they're living on the Serengeti plain and, and a might makes right and the bigger animal eats the littler animal and that's just the way it's supposed to be. Well, as David had feared, the death of Ab Abner had a negative effect on the people of Israel. It says in the passage there in the first verse that the people of Israel were disturbed. They were distressed by this. This, this didn't seem right to them. Whatever they thought about David, um, their, their thoughts were, were more negative now as a result of this. That Eshbosheth should lose courage, and the actual Hebrew word here means that his hands became weak. <laughs> you can understand. His hands were never strong to start with. Uh, but that he should lose, lose courage was to be expected because he had become king solely on the basis of the power of Abner. Abner had elevated him to the kingship, and Abner was the power behind the throne, and he was just a marionette, you know, that Abner was pulling the strings of. I ended that with a preposition, but I think sometimes we should end something with a preposition. <laughs> Winston Churchill said that was perfectly fine, didn't he? <laughs> Without the strong hand of Abner, Ishbosheth was in a very, very precarious position. The people of his kingdom were shaken, shaken by the death of Abner. Abner was a strong man with a strong hand. That's why so many of them had said, oh, well, okay, we kind of thought maybe David should be king, but if Abner thinks Ishbosheth should be king, why, well, we'll go along with that. But now that Abner was dead, who was going to defend the land? Who was going to enforce the law? In verse 2, we're introduced to two men who would attempt to take matters into their own hands and to chart the course of history. These two men were leaders of raiding bands who theoretically served Ishbosheth. They were, in fact, marauders who were not, apparently, an official part of the Israelite army. They had not served in the army under Abner except in extreme situations. They were kind of guys on their own. They were mercenaries who used the umbrella of the king to legitimatize whatever it is they wanted to do, whomever, whomever they wished to attack and to raid. We're told that their names were Baana, 
which means son of oppression, and Rechab, which means horseman or charioteer. Uh, they were actually more mercenaries than they were soldiers in, in an army. And we're told that they were the sons of Rimmon. Now that didn't help us much because we don't know much of anything about Rimmon. All we know about Rimmon is that his name meant pomegranate. Hey, my dad pomegranate over there. <laughs> and, and that he came from a town called Beroth, which meant wells. You know, you've heard of Beersheba, the, the seven wells down there at the southern end of, uh, of Israel. So Beroth simply meant wells. We, we don't know exactly where Beroth was. Most argue that it was just south of Gibeon. Here's Gibeon right here. Here's Gibeah. Remember, that was Saul's hometown and capital. Gibeon was a major city right over here, which had belonged to the Hivites. And just south of it was the city of Beroth, apparently, about two miles or so away. It too had been a Hivite city. And the scripture tells us there that when the Benjamites came in and occupied the land, that the Hivites who had been living in Abiroth fled, and they went a place, away to a place called Getaim and settled down there. But the problem is we have no idea where that place was located. Uh, probably somewhere in the general area, but we, you know, there's, there's no indication where the city of Getaim was, because Getaim seems to have meant wine press, and there were a whole lot of them around. And so where exactly they moved is, is uncertain. Verse 4 of this passage introduces us to Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson. And of course, anybody connected to Jonathan was dear to David because Jonathan was dear to David. And uh, we're, we're told that this uh, Jonathan's son's name was Mephibosheth, which means he who scatters shame. And, and I, I would attempt, I would believe to take that in the positive sense, he who scatters or for, drives away shame rather than he who spreads it around, <laughs> you know. Because I don't think Jonathan would name his son uh, somebody who spreads shame around. I mean, the kid dies when he's five. I, I'm, I'm sorry, Jonathan dies when his kid is five. So obviously he didn't see any vision of his boy running around being a shameful kid by the time he was uh, five. He's brought into the picture here because he's a possible claimant to the throne. See, all the sons are dead, but there's a grandson. And the grandson is the son of the oldest son. And traditionally throughout history, throne passes from father to eldest son, eldest son to his eldest son, and on down the line. And only when, there, when the eldest son sees, does not exist does the throne go to a brother or to a second son if the eldest son dies before the father did. For example, Louis XIV was succeeded to the throne by his great-grandson because he outlived his son and his grandson, the eldest son and the eldest grandson. And in some kingdoms, if all else fails and there is no male, they did historically pick a female. Not in this part of the world very much, but for example, uh, in, in the Austrian Empire, they would eventually come around to it. England was a little bit more willing to, uh, to accept a woman, but usually women were not viewed as uh, having the capacity to rule a nation, even though many of them proved that very wrong in being some of the best rulers that the nations have had. What, this verse is telling us why Mephibosheth was not a viable claimant to the throne, however. 
with the death of Ishbosheth, nobody said, oh, well, let's choose Mephibosheth. Well, uh, first of all, Mephibosheth would still have been very young, but second of all, the passage tells us that he was crippled in his feet. Now, today we would say, well, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was, uh, was a man bound to a wheelchair most of the time, even though most people didn't know it. And, and he was crippled, and he was, was, was president of the United States more longer than any other man in history. But we have to realize in the day and age we're talking about, anybody who had some serious physical blemish was not considered worthy to hold the throne of a kingdom. Well, when his grandfather Saul and his father Jonathan were killed on the battlefield uh, near Jezreel on Mount Gilboa, Mephibosheth must have been in a vulnerable position because we're told that his nurse grabs the kid and takes off in a big hurry to get away. It must have been close enough to the battlefield that she felt he was endangered. And uh, somehow or other, he fell, whether she picked him up and dropped him or tripped him or pushed him and he fell over. We don't know what happened because he was five. Chances are probably not too good she was carrying him, but might have been. And, and somehow he, he injured his feet in such a way that he became permanently crippled. This brief interjection concerning Mephibosheth helps us to understand why the assassination of Ishbosheth removed all roadblocks to David's coronation. David had no legitimate challengers to the throne. But of course, Mephibosheth is going to be someone that David has great compassion on and uh, will minister to this young man. Banna and Rechab were Benjamites and ostensibly loyal to the house of David. But these men were more interested in personal benefit than they were in maintaining their own family or, or, or the Benjamite clan in the, in the place of leadership. They were opportunists. And they were hoping that by doing what they did, they could get on the good side of David and this would produce a great windfall for them. And so they hatched up the plan. If we knock off Ishbosheth, we can put ourselves in, Dave, uh, you know, David will be indebted to us. And he will reward us, reward us handsomely. <laughs> they knew that Ishbosheth had a habit of taking a daily siesta. As you probably know, people in leadership do their best historically most of the time to not let anybody know about any routines. As you know, our president, uh, well, when Clinton was president, they wouldn't let him run the same route when he was out jogging. They wouldn't let him run the same route. There was no broadcast of the route he was going to run. He just would run someplace with, you know, with security uh, people with him. But it would, it would never be the same time of day. It would never be the same route because they didn't want anybody to be able to plan some harm. So it was rather foolish for Ishbosheth to let it be known that he took a nap in the middle of the day. So they came to the house in Mayanaim over here on the Jabbok River and gained entrance. Now the house was guarded, but apparently Ishbosheth kept a storehouse of wheat inside the royal premises, which was either used as payment to his soldiers or to feed some soldiers. And so these guys came claiming, uh, what well, we, we need some wheat in order to pay the troops or our guys are hungry and we need some food and whatever. And so they were permitted to enter the house by the guard. Whatever the case, they murdered Ishbosheth while he was asleep. And they took off his head and then they 
traveled all afternoon and all night down the Jordan Valley. Whenever you hear the word Arabah, the Arabah simply means this valley here, all the way from the Red Sea uh, to uh, the, the Lake, Lake Hula up here and, and even beyond. This is all the Arabah. The whole length of it is down faulted below sea level until you get down to the very far southern end where it rises back up to sea level where it meets the Red Sea. But all the way through this whole strip here, it's below sea level, so it's a down faulted area. Yeah. What did I say? Yeah, this is the Dead Sea. But as it, as it goes south, it goes all the way to the Red Sea. And when it reaches the Red Sea, it's, it's, ri it's risen back up to, um, to world sea level. It's no longer below sea level or else the Red Sea would pour in <laughs> to it. And, and then the Red Sea itself is in that same crack and it goes all the way into um, Africa. Ethiopian highlands, just right through it. So there, this is the Arabah. So what these guys did was they took his head and they ran down this way and then they climbed up from near Gilgal, right where Jericho is, they came up the escarpment and then they followed the ridge route down here to Hebron. That's about 50 miles. So it probably took them at least 24 hours to make the trip with their grizzly load and reached David's house probably about one day after they had done the dastardly deed. Well, I think it's very obvious. I, I run out of time to really finish it here, but it's rather obvious, uh, isn't it, to us that David is not going to take too kindly to this. Uh, he hadn't in the case of the Amalekite who said, I killed Saul, aren't you happy? And these guys are going to say the same thing. Here, here's the head of your enemy, aren't you happy? We did God's will for him. All right. <laughs> David said, well, I'll do God's will for him, for you too. <laughs> and uh, of course, the two men, as we read, will be executed, much to their chagrin. But I, I want to talk a little bit more about that and, and bring in a psalm that is kind of key to what David's view was of redemption. Who is the redeemer and how does God redeem? Because uh, that's really critical to understanding uh, David's relationship to these men and all those who choose to take the law into their own hands, because that was not David's way of functioning.